Hello, I'm Paulette Lee, and you're listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. If you're over 60, you're still worthy of being heard. Since this episode is for Valentine's Day, the topic has to be sex, dating, and love after 60, right? Okay, here's my disclaimer. I will be doing some frank speaking and quoting here, so if it's not for you, no problem. Come back next week. So, the romance picture. Sad to say for me, it's not looking good. I was widowed in 2010 after being with my husband 36 years. We were married for 32. And uh, I grieved for three years and then waded into the dating scene at age 66, more than 40 years after my last date. I first uh, reconnected with my high school boyfriend, but unlike all those Lifetime movies, which I don't watch, I'm just assuming, it did not work out. I don't know if they're the same as they always were, but I find the majority of available heterosexual males of a certain age mostly boring, juvenile, and self-absorbed, and their heads are still stuck below their belt, even if it's only the zipper that still works. In the past dozen years, I've had a few short-term relationships and dozens of dates, most of which came about via dating sites, but nothing has stuck. And according to Faith Hill, not the singer, in her January 2020 article in The Atlantic, What It's Like to Date After Middle Age, My prospects aren't too hot. More than one-third of baby boomers aren't currently married, she writes. Throughout their adult life, their generation has had higher rates of separation and divorce and lower rates of marriage in the first place than the generations that preceded them. And as people are living longer, the divorce rate for those 50 or older is rising, but that longer lifespan also means that older adults, more than ever before, have years ahead of them to spark new relationships, unquote. She adds that the prospects for women to repartner as they get older decrease. No surprise there, we straight women outnumber men and we're all by now rather set in our ways. Quote, women tend to live and stay healthier longer, Hill writes, and they also tend to wind up with older men. The older they get, the smaller and older their pool of potential partners grows. Well, I don't know about the smaller the pool, because there certainly are a lot of older gentlemen on all the dating sites to which I've contributed a lot of money. But I can attest to the fact that Darwin's survival of the fittest is not operational online. Probably the best way to demonstrate this is to share with you some entries in a blog I made up as I went along based on a nightshirt I once had that said, you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you meet a prince. I had that nightshirt when I did have my prince, but now that I have neither, I have remaining this rundown. Again, my disclaimer, it may be a little, uh, a little uh, too frank for some taste. All right, I'm going to call these men by guy and a numbers, just in case anybody happens to be listening. (laughs) Guy number one. So these are some lessons I've learned from some 
frogs whom I met online. Guy number one, if you choke up mentioning your late husband over lunch, that apparently is a sign that you're, quote, emotionally falling apart, unquote, and, quote, stoned. Really? Guy number two, when you go to an interactive theatrical performance on a first date and the guy you don't know across the aisle thinks you're funnier than does the guy you're sitting next to, there won't be a second date. Guy number three, be careful mentioning your belief in a monogamous sexual relationship too soon. If you do, and he keeps asking you out and is always using sexual innuendo, but there's no follow-through, then you should know that he's being, in his words, a gentleman. He was only kidding and only interested in you as a friend. Right. He just really doesn't want to be monogamous. Guy number four. You might want to consider that liberal political label you gave yourself in your online dating site profile. Your next match could be at the extreme end of that spectrum. This one berated me for wanting to visit Iran because the mullahs there are so oppressive. He proceeded to insult and condemn me and then broke it off before we ever even met. <laughs> Guy number five with a little bit of guys number three and four thrown in. So watch out for political correctness. This guy self-identified with his Mexican father's Indian ancestry, which included dressing a la Willie Nelson. He had a long gray braid, headband, bead necklace, etc. He was fine with my asking a white couple to lower their voices as they stood right next to us in the small restaurant, but then accused me of exercising white privilege when I asked the black woman sitting right behind me yelling into my ear to do the same. Of course, that was only after I declined his invitation to go home with him. Guy number six. Do not start dating, much less sleep with, a man who is just recently separated from a wife with, from whom he slept separately for more than half of his marriage of three decades. It could also be particularly disconcerting if he keeps sending you mixed messages and then accuses you of trying to change him, and how dare you, if you point out his inconsistencies. This is a man who is at best emotionally unavailable and more likely emotionally stunted. He'll keep turning up, though, like that proverbial bad penny. He seeks to win at the control game. Guy number seven. If you're white and meet a black man who's attractive and well-educated and seemingly very compatible, but he wants to educate you about the struggle with a capital S rather than get to know you, get out of there. Guy number eight. Don't go to bed and start acting as if you're in a relationship after one week, even if you're very physically attracted, but don't even know if you like the guy. Update, turns out I didn't. Guy number nine, don't even bother with a man who just talks about himself at the meet and greet, is totally humorless, just wants to show off how much he knows, and not only accepts your offer to pay for your own brunch, but then suggests you split it. And his order cost $10 more than yours. Guy number 10. Even if it's in France and he's English, he's going to ghost you. If those of you who don't know the, the slang, it means to suddenly disappear. 
from you're fantastic to emails every day signed love and wanting to see me to wants to be platonic friends to thinking about me a lot and wants to talk to email this isn't going to work sorry if you're disappointed there had been no communication between us throughout all this lesson learned a guy can do a relationship all by himself guy number 11 Another one, another Brit in France. If you spend a whole day together laughing, even when he throws up repeatedly in reaction to the lunch he ate, and he says you couldn't have been more charming. But then after a couple of emails and canceled visits, you don't hear from him again. Well, maybe you really did make him sick. And last but not least, guy number 12. When it's been going great for a couple of months and really could become something meaningful, and your birthday was celebrated with great sex, affection, and a thoughtful gift, it could all just evaporate in a minute of truthfulness. Sometimes a lie is better, as you never know when the truth, or which truth, will send him running. Lesson learned, he who has a very big prick can be one too. You know, the truth is, I don't know that I want a life partner. Been there, done that. I'm now set in my ways and don't want to have to answer to include someone 24-7. I'm more interested, I think, in a Thursday night through Monday morning plus traveling partner. Hmm, maybe make that Friday night through Sunday afternoon plus traveling. Some trips. Nina, who is 68, waded into the online dating pool 10 years ago after her second divorce. And she says dating site profiles can give you a snapshot, literally, of what a person looks like and an insight into their interests, likes, dislikes, attitudes about everything from family to the environment to politics. However, she cautions online dating can also be fraught with pitfalls. There are fake profiles, scammers, and frankly, just numerous men who I have absolutely zero interest in talking to, let alone look at. However, the three serious relationships she's had have come from online dating. Men in whom she says she found companions, travel partners, passionate lovers, friends, and dance partners. I think the thing about dating when you're older, Nina says, is you have a better idea of who you are looking for, so that elusive person is usually more difficult to find because your parameters are more finely tuned. You won't just date someone because they're good looking. You want them to have a high emotional quotient, be vulnerable and understand your vulnerability, be on the same page with you politically, and be able to hold up their end of the conversation. In the 2012 iteration of the Kinsey Institute's Singles in America study, two of the questions that were asked were, how likely are you to pursue a committed relationship with someone who offers everything you're looking for in a relationship, but whom you don't find sexually attractive? And what about someone with whom you're not in love? They found that the single people least likely to compromise on attractiveness and feelings were those 60 and older. The hypothesis is that older adults are less desperate to find partners than they may have been at a younger age because they wanted someone to raise children with or because they felt a social pressure to partner up. What do you think? Speaking of sex, well, I was a while ago, I guess. 
the authors of Sexual Function in Elderly Women, a review of current literature that I found in a 2012 article in the Obstetrics and Gynecology Review, <laughs> not necessarily one of my favorite reading materials, um, says that uh, although, this is a quote, although studies agree that the majority of women consider sexuality a very important determinant of quality of life, the literature on the subject of sexual function in elderly women is not extensive. I actually was surprised to read that. I guess researchers don't hang out with the same women, uh, same older women that I do. We actually know a lot about older women and sex. The odd thing is, though, no matter what the extent of our experience is as heterosexual women, we probably know far less about male sexuality. There have been some studies about older women and sex, though. For example, the review that I just quoted notes that, quote, sexual dysfunction in the elderly population has often focused on the lack of estrogen as a main cause. From early to late menopausal transition, the percentage of women with low sexual function increased from 42 to 88 percent. By the postmenopausal phase, there were significant declines in sexual responsiveness, frequency of sexual activities, libido, and the total score of sexual function. Combined with significant increases in painful intercourse, which has a name, by the way, dyspareunia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's D-Y-S-P-A-R-E-U-N-I-A. Um, so there's a significant decrease in painful intercourse and partners' problems in sexual performance, unquote. On the other hand, there is plenty of at least anecdotal evidence of women having the best sex they've ever had after 60, and less scientific studies pointing to the high rate of sexual activity and indeed STDs in retirement communities and nursing homes. Okay. Enough about dating and sex after 60. What about love, especially committed love that has endured? Speaking for myself, uh, two things happened in our last, though we didn't know they were going to be our last years together. One was that we stopped arguing about the same stuff we've been fighting about for years, and instead we laughed about the issue. Second, we made a commitment that we shouldn't have made at the marriage ceremony decades earlier because it's impossible to do that, to commit that you're in it for the long haul. For us, at least, it took the ups and downs of that long haul to test the mettle of our marriage and pay out the rewards of all the work a long marriage involves. If you're interested in a pretty long list of tips to make a long marriage work, writer Julia Malikoff offers 50 best marriage tips from couples who've been married for 50 years in the September 2020 online issue of Best Life. I decided instead to ask some of my own friends. Linda and Pam, both 75, have both been married for more than 40 years. In fact, Linda's 41st wedding anniversary is this Valentine's Day, so happy anniversary, sis. Linda's husband still works and has had a very high-profile and lucrative career in a very specialized field in which he's acknowledged to be one of the best. Linda has been the devoted helpmate and support in that marriage, 
and she admits to having had an occasional bout of resentment, but the pros have far outweighed the cons. She says, as marriage, life's problems come up and we wonder how much more we can juggle, we found that we're usually on the same page. We approach things as partners. We have similar personalities. Neither of us likes to fight. Pam, who's been married for 44 years, says she and her husband both grew up in homes where the parents yelled at each other, and so, so do they. But she says we've weathered so much, and we really care about each other. So we're continually adapting to problems, finding solutions. Linda and her husband are together all the time, not just because of COVID, but because he works from home. And, and she says they love being together, talking to each other, sharing the same interests. Pam and her husband, on the other hand, are both retired and, well, before COVID, they have an active social life. They like to go out, be with friends, travel, and play golf. But both women agree the keys to their long marriages are balance and friendship. Wanda, 80, is a widow, but at eight years in, things were not going well in her second marriage. She says it took another four years to get back on track, two years to unravel, and then two to recover. You can't fix it right away, she says, but I think we were able to make it right again because the foundation was so good. We knew what it was and what it could be, and it came back stronger, and we appreciated each other so much more. Apparently so. After the separation and reconciliation, Wanda's marriage lasted another 36 years. She says, the more experiences I had, both positive and negative, the more I saw that he always had my back. I always had a soft place to land. Relationships change over time, of course. For example, some of the characteristics I found so attractive in him at first came to really annoy me. <laughs> I have to laugh at that. Those of us who know long marriages know how true that can be. Wanda's assessment is that the basic reason a marriage lasts is luck. If you're lucky enough to find someone who has the same values, the same goals as you, she says, then your chances of being happy are tremendous. I'd like now to introduce you to Mae Sarton, if you're not already familiar with her. Mae Sarton was the pen name of Eleonore Marie Sarton, who was born in 1912 in Belgium and moved with her family in 1915 to Boston. A poet, novelist, and memoirist, she had a very, um, shall we say, colorful life, about which you can learn more by doing your own research. When she was 33, she met the woman who would be her partner for the next 13 years. And in her well-known memoir, At 70, Sarton writes about Judy's importance in her life and about her own Unitarian Universalist upbringing. A disclaimer here, I first learned about Bay Sarton because I am a UU, or I was a UU. Well, I call myself a recovering UU, actually. Sarton kept writing as she struggled with the experience of aging, with her final book, Coming Into 80, being published after her death in 1995. Although Sarton's work is strongly female-focused, indeed erotic, she never liked the term lesbian writer, preferring to stress the universality of human love. And her piece, Lighter with Age, expresses that. 
It was published in the New York Times on January 30th, 1979, when she was 66. Lighter with age. Love, we still think, many of us, is for the young. But what do they really know about it? It is hard for them to differentiate between sexual passion and love itself, for instance. If the whole of life is a journey toward old age, then I believe it is also a journey toward love. And love may be as intense in old age as it was in youth, only it is different, set in a wider arc, and the more precious because the time we have to enjoy it is bound to be brief. Old age is not a fixed point any more than sunrise or sunset or the ocean tide. At every instant, the psyche is in flux. She goes on to quote Keats, And like a newborn spirit did he pass through the green evening quiet in the sun. Sartin continues, On the edge of old age myself, I sense we may be newborn spirits at any moment if we have courage. Old age is not an illness. It is a timeless ascent. As power diminishes, we grow toward more light. Well said, May Sartin. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week for my episode on creativity. Do you consider yourself creative? Do you want to be? Do you know how to be? Are you afraid to be? We'll talk. Have a great week. You have been listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. Tune in wherever you receive your podcasts with new episodes every Monday morning. You can leave your comments by downloading the Podbean app to your device and on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm Paulette Lee. I hope you found this program worthy of your time.